0: live from lovely livable jamaica queens new york city this is in the bin your number one podcast stop for news and views about debate rhetoric oratory communication speech all that good stuff i'm dr steviano welcome uh it's been a long time since we have done one of these things so i'm a little rusty with the intro in the bin available, anchor.fm slash in the bin, and or wherever you get your podcasts shipped to you. There is a supply chain crisis, so I'm not exactly sure where podcasts are being delivered these days. Uh, it's been a while for us, because ours have been on a, um, including this episode, on a Chinese container ship, um, stuck out in, uh, off the coast of LA, I think. Oh. So, it's been a little bit. But anyway, welcome. We have a bunch of people here today. Dan... From Ireland is here. Dr. Tim Barr. Lucas is here and Dewey. And that's that's who's here now but there other people will come in. So, hello everybody. Greetings. Welcome. Hey. Hey. Good morning America. Hello. <laughs> Good morning America. That's Dan's line. Dan is Dan is muted himself. He must be getting another random phone call. He's been getting spam calls today. That's so what we were talking about in the pre no, no,
1: I'm, I'm fairly
0: clear now. Okay, good. No more spam calls.
1: I really reduced
2: the amount of spam calls I got by actually signing up to the Do Not Call Registry. Oh, which man. I was surprised it actually worked, but I, I was getting so many of them. So if you're getting a lot of spam calls and you live in the United States, maybe try signing up for that. That might help. Does that
3: yeah, still that, exist? <laughs> that yeah, sounds like know. the type of thing that would make you
0: get more spam calls I know I know but it, 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 it didn't it's poorly named like to talk about it from the rhetorical point of view the spam registry you sound like you're well, signing up for it
2: it's called the do not call registry
0: so you gave it a bad name but that's not what it's called oh okay well then the problem is my well that's easy to fix I'm just gonna not permit myself to name it <laughs> just don't make up worse names for things that's horrible That the the, the 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 puke registry I don't want to sign up for that Oh, it's not named uh, that? Okay.
2: Ministry of Making Problems. We really need to abolish this. This is my new platform. Nice. We, need to, we have a ministry of solving, problem solving.
0: Wow. This sounds, uh, maybe we can jump in the order here, because that sounds like a very good transition to Joe Biden's disinformation ministry. Yeah. Mis- ministry of disinformation. Um, I pr- I'm going to hazard a guess that we're all kind of opposed to this and we think say it's we kind can of take a straw, straw poll. Yeah, let's take a straw, yeah, straw poll that we all think it's kind of like creepily orwellian and stupid and I don't know. I mean, if there's anybody who knows disinformation, it would be anybody who's spent their entire life in one of the two major American political parties. They'd be masters of this. I thought well, the, of, I thought bad
1: the of disinformation was something out of Monty Python,
0: no? Mhm. It's, oh, it's
1: Joe
2: actually, Biden's making it for if it real. were called Ministry of Disinformation, at least it would be kind of have that old timey charm to it. But it's called the Disinformation Governance Board. It's like it's governing you through the disinformation. That's that's the vibe I get from that being like, yeah, this is the place where we put in the disinformation and it governs you. But it's also within the Department of Homeland Security, which is adds to the creepiness of it. Like, why would it be in DHS? Yeah,
0: that's governance? a great that's a great that's point. Weird. I wonder why. Hmm.
4: But well, is, is the purpose of it to keep disinformation at a fixed level? Like, we want
0: a certain amount of disinformation, like no more. Less. <laughs> it's the Federal it's the Fed. Reserve, it's the Fed for disinformation. We got to make sure the interest rate and the uninteresting rate are kept at balance. It's like, oh, people are watching less CNN. Quick, pump in some more disinformation. Let's get that disinformation rate up, increase that interesting rate. I think i I don't know Steve, I
3: think that people uh I think really Democrats have given up on the idea that persuasion is a thing,
0: yeah like not there just Democrats. needs to be
3: facts, yeah. and we need to all agree what the facts are we we need some higher authority that we can appeal to that they have the facts uh, there's no more there's no more persuasion. this is like the very um like Bill Clinton legacy of governing by just going with whatever the public opinion polls say and Like this idea, oh, we can't lead on issues, we can't you know, convince people, we just have to look at what public opinion polling says and
0: just try to do whatever they apparently think is popular. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree, I think it's a lot more than just the Clinton legacy, because I mean, maybe that's more sticking your finger in the wind, but I think we've moved into this era where it's like, unless, like the only possible way you can reason about anything is from scientific fact. And I think this is like an incredibly destructive way to globalize the reasoning process. And a lot of people in the field are like 100% on board with this. And I just don't understand rhetoricians saying, well, you have to have the facts before you can speak. Um, I'm sorry, but I think for the long history of rhetoric that I understand and studied that a lot of times talking about stuff reveals the facts and making arguments will reveal facts that couldn't be revealed in any other way. And then also it questions whether facts are the foundation, or are they like, you know, drywall, like if we're making a construction metaphor, where do they fit in? They're part of the construction process, but are they really the foundation of the house? Like the only thing you can build on? I mean, it's just a very strange way to think about this, but I mean, I get what you're saying, but I just I don't think it's the Democrats. I think it's our entire idea. I think it's a very dangerous road to walk down when you say the entirety of democratic politics must be framed and only spoken about um, on the basis of facts. And those facts have incredibly strict and limited um, ways of existing. So there's this Politico article
2: about this that I was reading that was making a comparison of this board to the Woodrow Wilson, uh, the Committee of Public Information, and negative in both cases. And I was like, oh, wow, an article from Politico that's making a good point? I was very surprised. <laughs> and then I got to this oh. paragraph where it was talking about, <laughs> talking about um, this guy, Creel, who was the, appointed by Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, to be the um, director of the industry. The appointment of Creel was another major misstep. Anyone heading a government bureau of information should possess a squeaky clean record or even-handed fact-based utterances. Wow. Yeah, and this could not be said of Creel because he was doing crusading journalism and was overwrought with his political alliances never far from the surface. So here's the idea: like in in the in a organ called Politico, um, the people that should be heading government bureaus are people who have don't have political <laughs> convictions. People who somehow yeah. that's the that's an issue is that people people who have if you if you have a conscience or any kind of political. Conviction. This becomes a problem. You're no longer squeaky clean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. It, it is a pretty weird thing to think about when they when it's put like that.
0: I need a new drop in for this conversation of like Commander Data to the bridge because <laughs> that's exactly what they want, right? This is like the yeah. the the dream of it. That's so interesting. Maybe we can like um, I was thinking while you're talking about that. Maybe we can make it a little bit more complicated and wonder what it is when pe- What it is people actually want when they say that? Um all political speech or all all of our politics need to be based on facts. Like, what are they trying to say there? Because, I mean, they're, I mean, it could be maybe a little bit straw person to be like, well, they want this kind of very thin conception that we're kind of talking about. But maybe it's actually they're expressing something that has a much more complicated sense to it um, is what I was thinking about. So, for example, maybe when people say it should be based on facts, they're saying... If we're going to have a political argument or a political debate, that part can be uncertain, but the basis of it cannot be uncertain. We want less uncertainty in the starting points to lead to more uncertainty later. I don't. I don't know. That might just. I'm just kind of pitching that out there as a possibility.
1: Um, is, is, is there some people, Sorry, these people don't know what they're what they're saying though? Like, I mean, when they talk about know let's just deal with the facts like is yeah. there like a strong chance the majority of people epistemology wouldn't be high in their reading list of subjects
0: yeah, no I think I think that's a very, I think that's exactly right I think it's the idea of like you should start from the unproblematic apparent world, which is easy to access, just look around, just know things uh and yeah, just start there. It's sad when you hear rhetoricians talk like this. Sad. I think, that, I think that there is, that surely is part of it. But I think there's also the idea that
2: um, social statistics, to, Let's you know, go, going away from just the idea of facts as a kind of positive valence term that's being used to describe an ideal of discourse for a lot of people.
1: <clears throat>
2: public statistics are created by, of, often funded by, bureaus of the government. Mm-hmm. Bureau of Labor Statistics, mm-hmm. the Census Bureau, things like that. Um, so social statistics, I mean, there's a whole history of kind of thinking about governance in relationship to statistics. The word statistic comes from, you know, the w- reason it sounds like it has w- the word stat in there, "Statwissenschaft," the kind of Greek word, this was know. the idea, this is what it was based on. Statistics were created as a way of thinking about governing populations and, and this was, you know, of course it applies to much more than that, but, and um, I think that there's In in addition, this might be a more narrow part of it, but there's a kind of desire to see um, government's role in producing information as providers of information as being something that is extra-political. And I think that fantasy is partly kept alive by the fact that we have transfers of power between different parties, but these bureaus or these state institutions that produce information are ostensibly remain the same. But I think this is also kind of part of um, part of an illusion. We know that things like the census in the United States have been affected by political uh, machinations of people kind of saying, well, we're going to change what kind of information is being looked for and try to scare away people who maybe are undocumented from filling out the census, try to change those kinds of things. People are thinking about the census in light of creating districts and political districts are really important to winning and all, all these kinds of things. There isn't a way for this information not to be political. And, um, but I think that, that's a kind of special part of this fantasy is that the people that are producing these informations are not political actors because they're impersonal and we don't really see them on this, on the image-making stage of politics.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I, <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, the part of that fantasy is also that just, like, this stuff is um, relevatory and it's just data and data can't be anything other than data. But the census point's a really good point, that kind of manipulation. It's exactly right. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder, like, <clears throat> how funny. I mean, when they, when they, when the Homeland Security finally puts out a press release about what this disinformation office is going to do, or every, is everyone going to be like, "Who is this at disinformation?" Like, we'll have some autophagic Pearlman Olbrichts titica autophagic moments. That's one what I'm thing I, I, I heard uh,
2: her saying, uh, Nina Jankovic's mm-hmm. um, about it was that on Twitter they were considering one of the things they would do is having all the people that have blue checks on Twitter. Given a new function where they can edit the comments underneath their posts for context. Oh my God! It's a way of correcting disinformation.
0: This is very funny. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's like it's just it's, like, it's like it's remarkable that someone would actually think that this would work. Like you can't create your own authority. Just be like, we have authority now. There's a new this new authority.
2: Well it works if you what you're trying to do is if you're a blue check, you know, it's kind nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, nice sure. of nice. Yeah, kind of nice with it. Be like, oh yeah, I get I get an extra button. So it depends on what you what you're trying to do. Blue check gang, blue check gang, yeah,
0: blue check gang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think one of the one of the personal interests of of mine is the, um, where I work. We have a department of Homeland Security major uh, that students can major in, and like I'm like, wow, if if that's if disinformation is a part of that, maybe I could teach in that department. Do a little cross cross-pollinization and mess some things up get that bag another so
4: Steve if someone says that that that's their major do you immediately
0: like, do you distance yourself from them I the feel no actually I feel very secure immediately I feel secure oh. in my <laughs> homeland right See, away yeah
3: I, I think you could definitely have a cross-listed class where you go over and spread some disinformation
0: I mean that's all I that's all teaching really is is just like messing up all this stuff isn't it like <clears throat> another topic we we'll talk about today that might flow into this one is like it's the end of the term and a lot of us in here have been teaching and thinking about the end of the term it's like one of the two times of the year i get really depressed Just full disclosure is this time of year the other time is about the second or third week in september when i realize that all of my plans are going to fail for my class like i have all these big dreams and plans and i'm just like oh man i wish i could go back and redo the syllabus because this sucks of course everything works out fine it's just like ritual more than anything and then this time of year, I'm like, man, I could have done so much more. I could have done da-da-da-da-da. So I'm always thinking about, like, hmm, what are some new ideas for teaching stuff like this? But one of the ideas, might, it, one of the things I think about are these big questions, like, so what's the point of teaching stuff like this? So when you think about the act of teaching in reference to disinformation, a lot of people would think that teaching is this, like, corrective, like getting people back on the right track. Mm-hmm. But that's a very conservative understanding of pedagogy in my view. And perhaps it might be like, you know what else we could do is rip up the tracks. And that part is a little bit more elusive in terms of like planning the course and all that.
2: In in light of information, I think sometimes in in class, I'll talk about like if if it's about information, we'd all be obsolete immediately. Look at what's in front of you right now. Mm -hmm. We're never going to. It's like playing tennis against the wall. You'll never beat the wall. Yeah, we're true. never gonna we're never gonna be have more information than than what you're googling right now, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, it's how right. Your, how's your shoe buying going, <laughs> or whatever? But um, uh, the uh, I, I think that yeah, I, I know that feeling of kind of oh, uh, what else could have happened? Um, but I think that's all that is kind of not just ritual, but part of the guidance of thinking about how to speak anytime that moment of, um, and and I'll talk about this in my class a lot too, the kind of spirit of the stairs moment after you are done speaking. You're like, oh, I could have said all this stuff. Right. Well, that's, that's kind of the, it's kind of the haunting thing that allows you to, uh, qualify yourself for the next performance. And what, it, what, it's what makes speaking a practice as opposed to just, uh, some kind of technical skill that you, you learn how to do this. thing. there's always this kind of moment where you're, you're qualifying your one performance by the next one through all the things that could have been better about it or different or, It's turning on these ideas of other possibilities. So um, it feels bad, but it's not really a bad thing, I don't think.
0: No, that's – I mean, yeah, yeah. That's how I think about it, too, is like an art, a practiced art Hmm. that one is always returning to and wondering about, and you always feel like it could be done better, and you never really think about how it could be done worse. And that's like (laughs) – that's kind of like one of these distinctions between a (laughs) skill-based thing or not. Like if you're taking math, you'd be like, oh, I know how to really like fuck up this problem big time, right? I can do it completely wrong. But like in speech, it's hard. It's really hard to do that because sometimes you do that and everyone's like, I love it. I loved that when you're just like, I didn't prepare. <laughs> I wrote this. Yeah. yeah I yeah. found a half used tube of lipstick on the subway and a napkin and I wrote my notes. This Five is always very distressing reading.
2: for students. And they're like, well, this this speech I got the, I feel like I did the best on, but I like didn't prepare at all. And this yeah. is very distressing. Yeah. they Or hate like, that. I, I was confused about what I was even supposed to say.
0: My favorite thing students have said this semester more than any is they're like, "Yeah, I'm sorry my speech was so bad. I'm just not very good at public speaking." And it's like, "Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, this is a 100-level course that everyone's required to take. You're like, this isn't a minority view. The entire university agrees with you." That's why you're that's why you're required to take the class. <laughs>
3: Everyone thinks that you suck. It's okay. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Why would you, and I'm always like, why would you come to college if you thought you were good at this, at all this stuff? Like, it doesn't make any sense.
3: My, my favorite, I had a student this semester who would not let me see, like, what she was working on. Like, we would go around the room two weeks before speeches be like, oh, so what topics is everyone thinking about doing, right? And she, like, doesn't want to share, like, it has to be a surprise for me on speech day. I'm like, that's not the point of
0: this. Yeah, like, this is the influence of Marvel movies, the spoilers. Can have any the post credit scene where Doctor Strange eats lunch with, you know, Superman or whatever. And they're like, oh, that's that's the next movie. Like they're like, no, no spoil. You gotta wait for the teaser trailer, the trailer for the trailer, and then you can know a little bit.
3: (laughs) It's this internalization of like how good my speech is is how good I am. Oh, Tim can go off on this. And so like I don't want I don't want your help because if you help me, it means I'm not as good. Right. Like Mm
1: -hmm. I need
3: to I need to show up without you knowing what's going on and you to just know that I'm I'm good on my own. Right. It's like the rejection of practice.
0: Yeah, we are really fighting against this kind of um, this is the thing Tim and I talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure Tim will want to comment on this about how we're fighting against these incredibly well-formed static identities that then are being displayed um, in class or at the university. And these identities are true and, and they don't change. But there's something, you know, but if there is a mistake in interpretation, it's about the performance maybe or something. But I don't know why end against that. That's like a hard thing to face. But students more and more talk in terms of firm identity rather than um, that they're malleable or they're changing, you know. Like even, even to the ironic kind of ridiculous point of like one of the firm identities is that they'll change their mind if they see better evidence and they'll never change their mind about that. I'm really indecisive. Yeah. I'm, I'm really all over the place. I'm all over the place, I'm, kind, I'm but the kind I'm, of person yeah, that is. I'm never going to change my mind about how I'm indecisive. I'm absolutely 100% <laughs> indecisive.
2: I'm, I'm the kind of person that's undecided. Yeah, that's
0: me. I'm wired this way. I'm just kind of yeah. wired that way. My brain doesn't my brain doesn't work unless there's good facts. I'm 57% Ken Bone. Oh no! Ken, of all the things that you uh, said to me today, someone's going to bring up Ken Bone <laughs> in the podcast. I would have been like, "I bet oh, you a ten grand that it doesn't happen." Oh so, man, I should have made that bet. Uh, yeah, well, but where, I mean, would that that, that co- where would that have come? Where would that have come from? If you... Yeah, that would be so weird. Yeah, you can't Pete Rose me, Lucas. <laughs> No, no Pete Rosing in the podcast too. So
2: now I lost my ten grand bet because I didn't think I'm going to up,
0: bring up Pete Rose. Oh shit! Here we're, we're on a slide now. Go Phillies! Slide um, down. I oh, yeah, that, Phillies!
2: Um, anyway. <laughs> I, um, I um, kind of begin classes now. Right, right there, like right at this question. So do you think? I think it's kind of more or less the central uh, barrier to. Being like creative, thinking about speech creatively. Uh-huh. And so one um, exercise, we do like a bunch of different exercises because we do these introductory speeches. <clears throat> and being like, okay, we can list a lot of predicates about ourselves. We can say, I'm I'm nice and I'm hardworking and I'm really passionate about Excel or whatever you're supposed to say in an introduction. <laughs> um, uh, I come from Utah and <laughs> these kinds of things. That's fine. I mean, that's fine. But everyone already knows how to do it. So what are we trying to do? What, what else can we, we do with this? idea of of introduction and I think about it as mask making thinking about the persona the the etymology of persona as a mask that one speaks through and and why that's maybe not a that's not a place for deception and so one thing that we do to kind of show ourselves of that is I talk about what things would people from different parts of your life say think about the people that are most different that know you your grandma your coach your um, your boyfriend your girlfriend Think about all the different people. And what are the things they would say about you? And then try to put those together. Do they all? How do they go together? <clears throat> and maybe they do go together. Most times people feel like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm different. I take on different roles with different people, which is an obvious kind of obvious sociological thing. But thinking that about yourself can be a little bit different. And then say, okay, well, if you wanted to present yourself to someone new, maybe finding that place of tension between those things that different people say about you and finding a place that illustrates that about you of how you do hold it together um, try try with that. So in a weird way, kind of using that desire to find identity through all of this noise. I mean, you could just be like, yeah, it's all it's all the case. But maybe the more persuasive thing, the thing that kind of gets activates people, is to say, well, what holds that together might be something you have to create. Yeah.
0: No, that's and, really, and good. I think
2: that, that I, I found some, I've had some success with that of people being willing to kind of play with their identities a little bit more by thinking about putting it together in a speech in a di- in a different way.
3: Yeah, and and what does it mean for when a student says, oh, well, I'm always really quiet in class, but I participate in this one, right? So it's like starting to break that static, constant identity. I'm doing a talk um, this week on the first day experience in public speaking classes. And two of the questions that I I ask are, how do my students interpret the version of myself that I present to them? And uh, what version of student... Am I asking my students to perform? I think both of these questions speak really to what you're talking about, Tim, which is that these identities aren't fixed things. Like they're constructed situationally um, and, you know, helping students recognize that, like, who are you in this speech versus who are you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 guess, I guess I have some. I kind of agree with that, but the idea that it's always kind of situational might, might be kind of going too far, too. It's, I mean, identity might be a place uh, for inventing, for at least for what we're talking about, for inventing speech, rather than kind of thinking about it as a thing that you have to kind of come to know. You know, kind of the, the, or, the oracle, I'm going to know who I am, um, that that's the kind of question that leads me to deeper and deeper self knowledge. Which there is a tradition of that in um I think especially in composition courses in the university in first year composition whether it be like kind of you have to discover who you are through writing, find your own personal voice your your experiences, especially the most trying ones, the ones where you have overcome adversity, but then this becomes a kind of pattern of identity doesn't it of or you you find who you, your voice is like, is that my voice okay, very good Did that that sounds right okay <laughs> um so rather <laughs> than thinking about it, is it situational is it permanent just kind of leaving that question open and finding places where that question kind of emerges persuasively in practice for people. Because you can say to people that, like, well, you know, we're all just kind of a bundle of habits. And they'll be like, sure, sure, but, you know, I'm this bundle of habits <laughs> and not another one. So to feel that to feel that anxiety as something that's productive and good, to be able to play with your identity, it might be might require more than just kind of intellectually knowing that. You have to kind of feel it in
4: some way, I think
2: feel willing to to play around with it.
4: I can speak to this as a student who was very quiet. Um, I went to college. I I didn't participate a lot. Um, And then I went back to college when I was like 25 for a year. And um, I was always... Uh, I wouldn't shut up. I would usually participate several <laughs> times in a class. And it's because I think in the intervening years, I'd realize, well, there's no, there's no penalty for, for being stupid or sounding stupid or whatever it does. I mean, you know, and to, like, Oh, wow. You know, these people who, who don't even talk, who, do, who cares what they think.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, to that, I mean, my, my experience in teaching the craziest teaching experience I had, which was also the most fun was teaching at, um, Allegheny County community college. In near Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh. And these students that I had had been through the ringer. They were all recovering alcoholics, recovering drug addicts. Um, two of them on the first day were like, oh, I recognize you. We go to the same methadone clinic. Like, they had been through the ringer, like hard stuff, and they were not at all scared about speaking in the classroom. Like, one guy was like, yeah, I just got out of prison. Like, all this kind of stuff. So it's like, life experience, that's kind of an extreme example of what Dewey's talking about, but... Um, I was shocked at how much different that kind of, like, life experience makes the classroom. And the classroom is, like, kind of scary if you're going from high school into college. And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, the real deal. But then somebody who's had some life experience is like, this is the fake deal. Like, what in here could possibly yeah, intimidate me? And the answer is nothing, right? So it's like, here we go. But um, <clears throat> then I've also had <clears throat> a weird... Kind of similar experience where I remember this one woman uh, very clearly who was, uh, she flew in um, combat helicopter missions in Afghanistan. She's a veteran. And she did not want to speak. She was like, I would any time, if I had a choice between giving a speech in front of the class and going on a combat mission, I would choose the combat mission every time.
4: And you're going to be like, well, fair enough.
0: I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't have a helicopter. We can't do that. Like, that's not an alternative. I don't have a helicopter. I don't have missiles. We don't have anything like that. So you're going to have to speak. But I mean, that was a, I mean, sure. I get it. I mean, it's just weird, right? It's like what, like this level of comfort and stuff like that. So there's, there's so much to play with in terms of this question. How our
2: counterinsurgency of the program have failed? I don't understand.
0: Yeah, I know. Um. <laughs> I know. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong there? I just don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gosh. I'd rather kill you than talk to you. Um, well, didn't have the facts. Light him up. <laughs> <laughs> I need. Now I'm, I'm like making a list of sound effects I need for the reboot here. I need Commander Data to the bridge. I need a. I need like the 50 cal gun out of the side of the helicopter. Sounds. What is that, Dan? Here. I don't know. Dan is also. Dan is also. Um, he might be on a helicopter. I don't know. I Just can't hear, Irish. I can't hear him croaks. I said something from the A team. Oh, the yeah! There we good. go. Gosh, I do need the gun sound from the A team. You're absolutely right. Bump <laughs> bump bump. Bum. I'm gonna write all this down. A team. Yeah, we're like a professional probably, professional probably podcast. Airwolf here. as well. Look, did you say airwolf? I did. Yeah, oh, that's what God. I said. Nice. amazing amazing dead air as i write down sound effects i need to google yeah oh okay um let's keep it let's keep it live folks what are you doing here you're just cashing paychecks huh
2: um toasty.
0: i do have some um, good sound effects this is true but uh yeah, yeah. there was a there's something else i wanted to say about what what um lucas was saying about first day activities i always start with just the the elephant in the room of like you're terrified about this so let's just kind of talk about some of the things that will that will help you make a good grade in here and that's always where i've started um just like here's how i want you to stand and here's how you speak and here's how you can like look around the room and just basic stuff like that and it seems to like help them out a little bit i don't know if that causes more anxiety but um, it seems sure, that, that they seem to on like. The that. Yeah, they seem to like. it. They seem to be like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, the bare bones information that I need in order to not fail the class. And they're I all think
4: concerned that's important about failing the class. To establish those expectations, just knowing exactly. Well, you know, just if you turn it into a mechanical thing, it becomes a lot less intimidating. Suddenly, it's not about your identity; it's about your posture.
2: Yeah. yeah. I actually don't do that. I mean, I, I think it's, it's fine to, to, to do that. But I think, I think talking about fear is important. But thinking about it is important, too, rather than just kind of being like, I mean, it's, people want to be like, where do I put my hands and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of times people have ideas about public speaking. So we can kind of begin there and say, well, why are these ideas are helpful or not helpful. But thinking about, the, about fear might be helpful to say, well, look, everybody's afraid. Maybe there's a reason why. Yeah. And maybe it's useful. Kind of not to kind of invite that in, but maybe work on it to think about it as one of the materials you have to work on in the speech. Um, I think it's the way, way I like to talk about it is it's like your antenna is, is working if you feel fear because you like you're recognizing that your audience might have different ways of thinking about things, they might think things about you, but the, but the problem is it's just kind of really unclear at first. You just kind of get that signal like, oh, there's gonna be other possibilities of what they say, and, and it's all about you and you feel nervous, yeah, but um. Another thing that's kind of helpful sometimes is to say, well, look, imagine if you, if you really cared about what you're saying and you said something good and that was persuasive and you felt nervous. A lot of people would like that more because they'd be like, wow, you know, this person's really telling the truth. They seem really sincere because they're like nervous when they're speaking and, and they really have some good points. It's not even really a bad thing if people see that you're nervous. I think that's what people are really afraid of is not just that they're nervous. People will see they're nervous seems to be a common um,
0: part of the anxiety. Yeah, for sure. That that also is like that kind of thing about identity. It's like I have to live up to my identity and yeah. I might not be this thing that I think I am. Or my identity will get in the way of me wanting to be better than myself. I don't know which direction is more likely. I feel like both are present in the student yeah. kind of but it is all about perception. That's also that's actually a very useful place to start is is like people are less worried about being nervous and more worried about the, their nervousness will be perceived. Yeah. That's a very good point. I have noticed that.
2: It turns red. Right. So I nonsense. like to, I like to use these really corny things. I do a lot of corny stuff too. In the on <coughs> early days of class and be like neck red, that's war paint, sweaty palms, ready palms. Oh, nice. I like all you got. All uh, this. Uh, all and I'm cool. um, like, uh, there's this young adult novel called the contender about a kid who's a boxer. And at one point he's about to go into a match and the guy in the corner is like, all right, kid, you got the butterflies in your stomach. Like, yeah, yeah, I do. And he's like, I oh, you gotta take those butterflies and you gotta crush them into a ball. Wow. A ball of ice. <laughs> and that's that's <laughs> that'll make you ready. And I'm like, even though that's bizarre, it's kind of useful. You can in your imagination reorganize your feeling. Don't try to get rid of it. That's gonna make you blank and, and brick. Yeah. Brick out. But if you kind of like reorganize it, if you play with it a little bit, in, even at the level of the physical sensation, be like, okay, imagine that as like Electricity coursing through, whatever is going to work for you. It's, this is also sometimes
1: helpful for some people.
0: Course requirements. I have, I have a ball, for you. Um, ball, of butterfly goop.
1: Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> yeah, did, would teaching something like Erving Goffman and sort of, you know, um uh, presentation of the self or something like, would, would that help? Like, say, for um, for speech classes, or, or would that be would that be too complex too early?
2: I touch on that idea sometimes. Like some of his ideas about face work and stuff, it'll come up. It won't, it won't be something that like I'm like, they we're going to read or it won't be like that. But I might touch on some of his ideas and say, yeah, we're all kind of, we're kind of presenting various masks. This is a normal kind of part of of society. You can go read this guy if you want, maybe something like that. But yeah, maybe it's like a, a little bit too much to kind of, you don't want to over theorize. I think early on, you know, you can yeah, make the cake too it. heavy. It won't rise. That uh, is, that's my fear too.
4: Yeah. So I just have to comment. Um, so you, as professors of rhetoric, actually are feeling the same kind of fear that your students are feeling. Do you convey oh. that to them so that they're aware? You know, I you know I have this too, and I have to overcome it every day. Uh, it's easier for me because I've been doing it for a long time.
2: Yeah, I would say I I would say I don't. You don't have to overcome it. I guess is the point almost that I would make. I'd be like, yeah, I feel it too. I just am very used to it. It's like my pet. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, oh, that's that little, that's that little twinkle. For me, that's just like the pilot light is on. So it's if you spark. practice this enough, you, the feeling won't go away. It'll, but it'll be transformed. It will mean something else to you. Something like that, I think, is helpful. And then I tell them some really embarrassing stories about me and moments I like. I'm like, you'll never do anything as embarrassing as this. And I'll tell them stories about myself, and they're like, oh wow, I can't believe that.
0: <laughs> that's so this good. This is
2: very helpful too. i like, I was singing the national anthem, and my voice cracked, and I could hear the stadium laughing at me, and they're like, oh okay, yeah, it won't be that. bad. I'm like, exactly. You'll be okay. I was like, I want to leave school forever. And I went back the next day and it was fine.
0: Nobody, nobody remembered. That's very good. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think to, to Dan's point, I think that composition rhetoricians are way ahead of us because in their courses on writing, they assign whatever to read to make the course less about the production. The production is like about something. So I think assigning, I don't know if there's a thing where you can assign. I, I, do, I don't think we should be over-theoretical on the production of speech or what making a speech is but i think we can assign all kinds of difficult reading and just make the class be about talking about that and then through that they get some practice and they say oh well when there's really something interesting to say and there's substance here uh this is easy the problem most public speaking people do is they're just teaching public speaking from some of these horrible textbooks that are just about an informative speech has these three parts and here's how you format an mla bibliography or whatever And that's not substance, that's just the way of um, doing stuff. That's just the doing of it. And so that's uninteresting, and they get scared, because they're like, I guess I'll give a speech about the drinking age, or marijuana should be legal, or whatever. And that makes this class bad. So more more readings is is good. I think to Dewey's point about the nervousness or whatever, yeah, I mean, I, I feel it from time to time. Now it's just like another day in the office. But I did used to have the students read this, like, it's kind of old now, but... Um, Madonna did this um, interview about when she played when she did that movie Evita, and how you know it's like this Andrew Lloyd Webber musical thing. She had to sing um, "Don't Cry From Your Argentina" in front of Andrew Lloyd Webber as like part of the audition process, and she talked about how she got extremely nervous. And it was just funny to think about her getting nervous. Like she'll sell out a giant stadium for multiple nights, you know, and perform no problem. But, like, in front of this one person, nervousness. So, like, if if she's got to deal with it, everybody has to deal with it. It's not such a big deal, you know. But it's dated now. I don't think the students would resonate with them. um Hello, Janae. Welcome.
5: <laughs> Hello. There's just one thing that I did want to say. So, when I had Yano for argumentation and Korean advocacy, and it was an online course. Oh. Yano's YouTube videos helped so much because I think it was the first video he posted about a reading – And he was like, if you're concerned or confused, don't worry, I am too. And something about that just made me feel like 10 times better about like, okay, this is a professor who understands that like the reading that we're doing may not be digestible or, you know, it kind of took off the load of having to understand it and having to produce work like I understood it. Because in that exact assignment, I was like, hey, I didn't understand this assignment. But was like, that's okay. So it makes Students feel better.
0: Yeah, I certainly don't teach because I have some kind of like clear understanding of anything. I teach probably because of panic. I'm like, do you, does this make sense to you? I've been thinking about this for a long ass time. No? Oh, okay.
5: That's how it usually goes. It's just like, oh, okay. But we're all just here confused together in the classroom and let's figure it out. That's like a good professor to me. Very good. Yeah, you're about to
0: teach this stuff in the fall.
5: Anyway, <laughs> we have to see what that looks like. I know, um,
0: I know. Yeah, this is like, it's good that you're here because now we have like the full spectrum of various perspectives on it. So it's good stuff to think about.
5: I've yet to hit that spectrum, but... yeah, well, I'm sure you're thinking about it. Yeah, you know, <coughs> I, when I when I talked to Kendall, he was like, you would be perfect for my class. Like his research, I forget what class it was. Specifically. Oh, yeah, you would be. Yeah. Yeah. So
3: he was talking. I to taught me that about- class and you would be better at it than I was. <laughs> what class is this? It's it's research methods, but it's like research methods that people who have bachelor's degrees in communication would go do. So it's literally Janae's job is the class. And the classes run as, like, a simulation, so it's a large lecture. The recitations are working in, like, teams, working on different projects, basically doing exactly what Janae does in her current day job.
5: Very much so. And so, you know, he was talking to me about that. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's three different routes. Well, a lot of routes for the courses that I could possibly possibly teach at Syracuse. So, I guess... Come August, we'll just figure that out, what that looks like. Are you nervous about it? No. Okay. I mean, I used to be – I don't want to, like, turn this whole thing around like, me. Um, no, but- I mean, we're talking, we're talking
3: about, right, like, performance anxiety in front of an audience, how your identity is reflected in the way that you present yourself to an audience. I think that your first time – like, my first time teaching, I was very – I was, like, incredibly self-aware. I think I'm much less self-aware. Now, having been doing it for a few years, then when I first started, I was, like, very much, like, who who do they think I am, right? Like, what what am I showing them? Do they like me, right? Like, these types of questions might, uh, when I was first starting out teaching.
5: Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was hearing that. So, I mean, everyone, again, is different. And, like, for me, like public speaking courses always came really easy. And I was kind of like that student who just couldn't shut up or I was a student. They kind of made me go last because they knew that I didn't have like a feeling of nervousness to get over. So they were just like, let everyone else kind of go through it. And then we'll just have Janae who knows what she's doing or pretends to know what she's doing. So speaking in front of people, I kind of just believe in like a fake until you make it. Um, that may not always be good, but you know, that's okay. It works for me. And I don't think I'm nervous I for a really big portion, like before even sending in my official application, I was like so nervous because I was like, I'm going to get in this position and I'm going to not be able to teach these students or be just as confused as them. And kind of back to what was said earlier about like, you don't really care about your own nervousness, but like people perceiving you as nervous because then that their perception of that is like, they may not take you seriously. They may not care. They may kind of, like, poke and pry at that, like, oh, I see you're nervous. Like, let me put you on the spot more. Like, all those different type of scenarios. Um, But then I just realized, like, not to say I don't care, but, like, it it just is what it is. And I just kind of let go of any, like, why am I premeditated nervous about something? Like, why am I nervous about being nervous?
0: Yeah, until you're in there. I mean, I guess you have to show up for your class however you are. Yeah. That's a good thing to accept.
5: And I just realized that I always figure it out. And, like, I don't have an issue speaking with people. It's just, like, the idea of content and, like, what I will be speaking in front of people is up in the air right now. So that's what was making me nervous because, like, well, how can I prepare to teach people something I don't know that I know or don't know? And, like, it's just basic stuff. But I'm, like, everyone views basics as different. So I got in my head about it. But I was, like, you know what? I really don't care. I don't care what it turns out to be because I'm just going to show up and do what I have to do.
0: Period. Yeah. Period. <laughs> we need that as a so. drop in too. Janae saying, "Period." <laughs> it's just such good branding for the for the relaunch of the show here. Absolutely. Yeah. You know the yeah. that uh, you know the um, ignorant schoolmaster is what that made me think of Janae that book by Ranciere about Jacques Attot the the te- the French teacher who taught things that he didn't know anything about. He was like, "Yeah, we'll just look at it together and figure it out." So, he'd teach courses on things that he didn't have any basis on because he was like, "This is what teaching really is: is like looking at something and asking each other about it and figuring it out." That yeah. was, I,
3: I would say, one of the best teaching experiences I've had was when the first time that I taught interpersonal communication. Now, I'm not an interpersonal communication scholar. I never even oh. took an interpersonal communication class. Oh. And I had to teach it, and it was very much like, hey, let's do all these reading, like the readings that I got from the other instructor, right, who's been doing this forever, right? Like, let's just do all these readings together as a class and come in and have discussions. Like, I don't have lectures for this stuff. Uh, you know, I am a more experienced scholar than the students in the class, right? So in that sense, I was the, the facilitator for the discussion, and I oftentimes – maybe could clarify some things that they were confused about, but we really were kind of learning. It was my first time going through just an intro level interpersonal comm class with them. And uh, I mean, it was great. Like I, I love that class. Um, I've, I've always think, well, I haven't had to teach it again since then. It was kind of a, you know, they needed me to do it that semester, but I always think if I did it again, it would
0: probably be worse because now I, now I know it all already. Yeah, I think it's like one of these, th- this, so the Buddhists have this great, there's this great sense of like teacher and student relationship, and they're always like, true student is inside, true teacher is outside. I and mean, this is a well-known Buddhist idea, right? Which is, anything you encounter is a teacher, right? And you're, the student is inside you, and that's the only way it is. You're never in a position to teach anybody. You're always the student learning from everyone you encounter. So this attitude is a tough one to to take on, especially in our world where we're meant to feel highly individualistic. You know, we have all these special skills and abilities and things like that. I mean, all of that is still true. We're all very special people, but like when we're encountering somebody, we're just like, Oh, look at that idiot. They need to learn instead of that. It's like, wow, what are they trying to teach me? What's the, what's the thing I'm trying to, to get out of this? Like they're here to instruct me. And so when you take that and then you, you, you layer it over again and, and do it in the classroom and be like, okay, I'm in front of my class. They're my teacher. What are they trying to teach me? And then of course you're teaching them. Uh, but only if they have that attitude of like, well, I'm the student and whatever I encounter is a teacher. So that's something worth thinking about and talking about. And those situations like that, I don't know how related it is to the, to the Jacote thing. I'll have to think about it a little bit more, but I think it's, I think it's related. But um, this idea of like, well, I'm just going to appear in front of my class and they're going to teach me about my teaching might be a nice, healthy way of, and, and fun too. I mean, you probably learned a lot about interpersonal um, through that. It's, it sounded like the attitude. I really like that attitude.
3: Yeah it, was, yeah, it was super fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Then there's also the other um, great Buddhist teaching quote. Mouth open, already a mistake. Which is also a very good thing for public speaking and teaching debate <laughs> as well. If your ma- mouth is open, you've already made a mistake. So it's like there's no way you can say anything pure. Or maybe even anything good. It's always going to be flawed. So get over it. You have to do it.
4: I mean, I would say that's the general theme of the this whole conversation so far is that we're kind of recoding anxiety, doubt, uncertainty, you know, flaws. The, these are not negatives. They're part of life, and yeah. they go along. They're they're positives.
2: Yeah, I feel like... Yeah, I
4: think, I yeah, think, I think with ahead.
2: doubt, I mean, one of the things about doubt and uncertainty that's... I mean, we certainly can take the approach that says... These things are, are part of life, so we, or maybe even most of life, or all of life. So we should, our education should have something to do with them, and kind mm-hmm. of be realistic that way. But may, maybe one of the positive things about something like doubt is the when you're certain, when you have certainty, um, you're done. There's nothing else to do. But if you have doubt, you kind of have to... Doubt is irritating to us. And so you kind of want to do something with it. And so it makes you ask questions and try to resolve it. And so if we, one thing that, it, that is generally positively balanced in our culture is something like inquiry or innovation. And this doesn't, those don't come from places of certainty, they come from places of doubt. I like the metaphor of the, of the um, oyster and how oysters make pearls, which is they get a little bit of irritant in them inside of their, in their bodies. And so the mother of pearl or not knacker is kind of, they use that to put around the little irritant to kind of soothe it. But that makes the irritant just bigger. And so they keep doing this over and over and over again. And so that feeling of irritation is what makes the pearl. I think that that's kind of another way to maybe relate to this feeling of anxiety or doubt of trying to see that, keeping that going for a little bit and having that response to it of trying to kind of make it go away, both will maybe increase it but also produces something that's, beautiful or valuable mm-hmm. to i us. like that i really like that
4: yeah that sounds like torture though
2: yeah yeah well i mean the, the students already feel tortured a lot of the time so it's trying to help them yeah they're okay. on the rack they're on the rack and you come in and you're like let me talk to you about why the rack is not such a bad experience you know sometimes yeah. are something good will
3: come them. from this torture
2: yeah sometimes they're pretty pissed off Oh, like, yeah but what do i do with my hands and I'm like, okay, put him here. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, you, you might kind of give in to some of
0: the... the yeah, they're like, why can't like, I use the podium? Yeah, yeah. well like, like, sure, you you're not going to have there. a podium. Right. So yeah. don't use it. You're going to be in some horrible conference room at the Hyatt.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Trying to get like, the. Why, to... why
2: can't people see me white-knuckling during my speech? It's like, well, yeah, you know, right. they can if you want them to. <laughs> I want them to feel like I'm I'm driving uh, with a, a 0.08 ABV while I while I see uh, the police sirens behind me. I want that to be the feeling of my speech, please.
4: Okay,
0: sure, yeah, right. If want to. <laughs> that'll make you feel better. But without the podium, professor, I can't rapidly read this essay I wrote last night <laughs> as quickly as possible.
4: Well, for me, that would mean I'd have to do laundry if I can't use the podium.
0: Well, there you go. There's many paths. That that's a, definitely a pearl, Dewey. <laughs> that's the pearl that will be extracted from the maw of yep. the from the belly like of the pearl beast. Smells like onions maybe. Ooh, now I'm hungry. Mm. I'm getting a little hungry. It's getting close to lunchtime. Here. Uh so yeah, so we um we've been asked to do uh the the podcast carnival, the big the big the 3rd annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival which will be the last week of August, it looks like, August 22nd, 25th, which I got this email, and then I was like, oh, you know, I haven't done a podcast in a long time. You know, supply chain crisis, supply line crisis has uh, really blocked us up. And now they You're like Springsteen and the E Street Band back together. It is kind of like that. Thank you, Dan. That's I like that. Am I Max or am I Bruce Springsteen? You're probably Springsteen, Steve. Oh, man. that's These are big shoes to fill. You need to get. A, we probably need to get a sound effect for that too. I just need the like the chorus from the Streets of Philadelphia song. Do 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 do. I'm not going to sing. That would be really bad. We'll be disinvited. So the theme for the big rhetorical podcast carnival this year is spaces and places in and beyond the academy. Rhetoric space, places and spaces in and beyond the academy, which is like. I don't know. I guess that's a theme we could do something with.
2: I don't know if we if we can fit anything in that theme.
0: Yeah, probably not. Does Rhetoric even exist outside of the academy? I mean, rhetoric in the is a world? In, no. no. Yeah, I mean, I guess the theme of that show will be rhetorical criticism. How to teach it on the street. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. It's like, I mean, it's like a conference theme. I guess we can ignore it, but yeah. we could riff off yeah. of it as well. I don't know, what it makes me think about is, so <clears throat> one of the things that we can talk about, which will it'll be over by the time we record that episode, is that uh, in at the end of June here in New York, here at, uh, at my shop where I work, at St. John's, uh, we're hosting the Civic Debate Conference for the second time, which is this organization that was founded to try to, like, create debate events outside of um, typical intercollegiate debate activities, like going to a weekend tournament that, that has no audiences in classrooms at some state college somewhere. And uh, although that's fun and enjoyable and entertaining for students to do, there might be something more valuable we could do with civic partners, organizations, corporations, things like that. Doing debate events with them to, like, engage some of the bigger questions or engage some issues that maybe might be a little bit more in tune with the with the public so this organization's grown quite a bit since the last time i associate here but you know they're having this uh and i'm wondering about that it's kind of like rhetoric places and spaces in and beyond the academy seems pretty relevant for this kind of attitude that like well one of the things about rhetoric is the teaching of debate why is that so insular why don't we have uh debating students or students who are interested in learning debate go and and work with um, different organizations outside the academy and speak to things that are on their mind or important to them. So that's what that conference is going to be about. I'm sure I'll probably... I probably should have some people from the conference on the on the show, and we'll talk about what happened at the meeting. That sounds good. Yeah, that could be pretty good. We could do that show. But, I can just bring my uh, recorder into the room and be like, what do you guys think? We're going to have an open bar, so it's the perfect time to record a podcast. Is it a space or a place? um it is a oh actually you know what it is a space that is in the academy so it's the le- it's the most boring permutation of the theme of the carnival that i could come up with
4: I was gonna say, there's like eight different themes
0: in that yeah actually it should be rhetoric places and spaces in and bed bath and beyond the academy that's what i would have made it if i was in charge which is well, probably why i'm not in charge
4: to, to go back to what Luke said, uh, is there rhetoric outside the academy? I don't believe there is, but I also believe that nothing exists outside the academy.
0: Oh, man, you take a hardcore view.
3: It's like... Man, that's really crazy coming from someone who doesn't work in academia.
0: He's just fully do, aware. According to my a, own beliefs. He, yeah, you're fully aware that you're just like a hologram, right?
3: So we need to get the the Ministry of Disinformation in
0: here to deal yeah, with the Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden's officers of disinformation are now converging. Outside of my home, I can hear them. They
2: always thought everything was water, and
4: Dewey thinks everything is. Well, yeah. um, I gave an informational speech at work, and it went great, and I managed to do it without using any rhetoric. Whoa. Right? Yeah.
0: Wow. So what is that what does that look like?
4: Well, here's the thing. I have to skillfully organize all the information to avoid using any rhetoric. It's actually a really kind of a, just an art.
0: Hmm. Hmm. In the South, we have a an idiom about this, which is you have to go. They they went around their elbow to get to their thumb.
2: That's nice. I like that.
0: Yeah, Colorful. that's an old that's an old Southern. I'm full of these things because I grew up in the South. There's so many that my family would say, but that's a, that's a that's one that doesn't come around that often but I immediately thought of it but it's probably not the best idiom the best idiom of all time growing up in Texas is that that man is all hat and no cattle I think that's the best one that's my favorite I never use it though hard to use it in New York
2: I was thinking of um that the Joshua Meyer book no sense of place Mm. Uh, recently, which came out in nineteen eighty five and he's kind of thinking about how um electronic media has affected the way that we think about public spaces and today, I think it's it would be interesting kind of maybe go back to some of his arguments and think about whether they hold up in our moment, whether they're kind of more or less true or kind of ring true for us that sense of um of place. Is that something that is? Um, I mean, it might not, might not be a bad thing. It might be a good thing that people uh, are kind of don't really feel that they're anywhere in particular because where they really are is on their phone, or where they really are is kind of somewhere. Their their interests and their concerns might be less uh, located in in a place than they used to be. So when you're kind of moving through <clears throat> a city or a town or something like that, there might be less. Places, I don't know but I don't find that distinction between place and space very interesting I'm just trying to think of other things you could do with it but it sounds like you already have an idea for the for talking at the hotel bar with people
0: yeah no I think um that actually gives me an idea maybe we should like the way to approach this um podcast carnival episode would be everybody could read that text and kind of respond to it because mm-hmm. that seems like a good starting point you know It's a little bit old. I don't know. I don't know if people still read this or not. But
2: yeah, it's it was, fine. It I mean, yeah, I think that might
0: be stuff. a reason. To, that might be a reason to bring it in and be like, "Yo, yeah." Because yeah. I was thinking when I first got this email, I started thinking about that old book. It's also from the same time period, 1983, Chiron Chironomia. You know this book? I don't know that one. I forget the author. I don't want to run across the room and look at my bookshelf because it's going to sound weird. But. Rick Charles White. Yeah, White. That's right. That book is. Um, it made me think of that. This idea of like rhetoric places and spaces in beyond the academy like wouldn't that always be this kind of chirotic construction slash recognition depending on where you fall in the kairos debate um maybe that would be but you know having like an old returning to an old text i think is always just very valuable particularly with that perspective you had which is like the space place distinction might not no longer obtain when everyone has an iphone yeah and you see older faculty, uh, lots of people, uh, in, in our field, lots of people be like, oh, these students are on their phone all the time. And I'm like, you're a communication scholar, bro. Like, you should be celebrating this. This is like amazing, the amount of love and compassion and connection. And like, just because they're not like, you know, kissing your feet or whatever, doesn't mean that they're not communicating. It's so stupid. I just hate that attitude so much. I'm like, of course they're on their phones. You're boring as shit. Spice it up. <laughs> of course they're on their phone. That's where the people they love are. They do not love you. They're not interested in you. They're, they're, they, they consider your class an elaborate hazing ritual so they can get a decent job, so they can make over 40 grand a year. That's the only value you have to them. So you need to, like, that's the rhetorical challenge. Like, step up. I can compete with a phone. I know I can.
4: Is uh, Chironomia, is that like the rock, paper, scissors of the debate world?
0: (laughs) What would that look like? The different different rock, paper, scissors. Evidence. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden's disinformation. Office. Mm. Evidence. Idiom. I don't know. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Chironomia. America's favorite game show.
4: I think rock would have to be like coercion. That's the final, in the final analysis, it's rock.
0: Nice. There you go. Yeah, It'll be like just different names from uh, the Gorgias.
2: Rock, paper, scissors is kind of nice, actually. Yeah. But now it's making me think of this, this thing that happens a lot going back to the classroom where people are like, well, if I say that when we're, when we're doing debates, like, if I say that, then they'll, they'll have an answer. And being like, well, yeah, of course, but that doesn't mean it's it's bad. Maybe Rock, Paper, Scissors is like, think about a game where there's always some there's always some kind of weakness. There's always some kind of strength. And we already have a very simple version of that in Rock, Paper, Scissors. that mm-hmm. pretty much everybody would know, I would say. It's like, yeah, you're just, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that game, but.
0: <laughs> no, but the basics are there. Yeah, the basics are there, though. You're right. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. in any kind of audience situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's almost like martial arts, you know how, like in the traditional martial arts, it was all very like um uh mimetic, right, crane style, tiger style horse style, yeah, like it's all about some the way some animal behaves, cricket, cricket style cricket all this all these different kinds of martial arts, the mantis style uh and, and it was all about like studying nature carefully with this idea that nature will reveal these particular principles that are immutable, right. But in different situations, you have to kind of adapt your style to fighting against that other style because it's a mutable principle hits a mutable principle, you know. So that's really kind of interesting for that because rock, paper, scissors would be like the foundation of the different kinds of styles mimetic to various inanimate objects and office supplies rather than, <laughs> rather than crickets and cranes and tigers. <laughs> I kind of like it. Yeah, It's like, ooh, he's, he's Scotch Tape Dispenser style. Watch out. Sticky. My
2: favorite office supply is a rock.
0: Yeah, pet rock Paper stone. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a paperweight. Sure, mm-hmm. it's like a stone engraved like to our favorite professor. Your SPE twelve twenty six class fall nineteen ninety eight. To to you who has not sinned, here is the first stone. I remember, <laughs> I remember one <laughs> of the I got one of the weirdest gifts I ever got it was not from a student but from a supervising professor who gave me like. This urn that had a plaque on it that said, ashes of problem students. <laughs> it's, so, it's so dark. Oh, it's fucking dark as hell. But this is the attitude <laughs> people have about teaching, right? This is like, it's just kind of it's this like, belly laugh. Things, you know? like, if you
1: enter that this, you be in the script
0: for the new series of Dexter. Like, there you go. <laughs> Dexter becomes a professor.
2: Oh, no.
3: Well, or you could work at a technical college like I do where literally in the classroom downstairs from where we teach public speaking is where they have the cadaver for the funeral services certificate program.
5: You just well, say, well, so- if you
3: do, if you do bad
0: on your speech, I'll just send you downstairs. Damn. Well,
4: they have an incinerator there, right?
0: <laughs> I don't think they do. How much do they pay for part-time work as a cadaver there? <laughs> could be a good way it's of all, getting um, ahead. It's all volunteers. It's a good way of getting ahead in life is to volunteer as a cadaver. Get ahead and lose ahead, maybe. Yeah, well, you're definitely getting ahead of all of your peers. You're like, I'm making it to the end before you. Kind of some dark humor here. That's that's funny. The cadaver, the funeral director certificate program. Wow.
3: Yeah, it's literally it's literally downstairs from where we teach public speaking. I had the students are always whispering about it. I've like, had
0: two or three cadavers in there. We're like, yeah. I've had two or three students who've given speeches about working at a funeral home and being in training to be a funeral home director. Mm-hmm. One of them was at the community college in Pittsburgh, and she was amazing. In fact, she even did a PowerPoint where she showed images of preparing a body, but they were so well done. They weren't disturbing, you know, and then people were like, was that a real was that a real person's arm in that photo? Because it was just so well done, <laughs> you know, I was like, and she was like, yes, it is. Yeah, this was me putting the embalming fluid in or whatever.
3: Yeah, I get lots of embalming wild. speeches from the funeral services students. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the other one was here at um, St. John's with somebody who was like, yeah, I work in the funeral home. And sometimes we have to hear some things we have to do to bodies to make them
5: presentable. And
0: the students had no end of questions. Super. There wild. used
5: to be, like St. John's used to offer like a funeral service, like I think certification too, because I was on UIS one day like making my new schedule and it was like funeral service, whatever. And it was just like two courses, but I was like, Oh, I should have used that for my (laughs) elective. I should have used that for my elective, but I was like, Oh, that's interesting. All right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, I need the period one. I can't do anything. So what you're saying is you were looking on UIS preparing your schedule and you saw the funeral services director courses and you said, I'm dead exactly period
5: exactly. period no coming back no um,
0: coming back
5: and i i don't know i thought that was very interesting i i don't know that's shocking a i was like oh funeral service courses and then somebody's like yeah a lot of schools like weirdly offer of that and i was like oh right
0: well i think this is a good point to maybe wrap up the show since we're talking about funerals so this is the end this is the end of the life of this episode The death of the episode. The death of the episode. Join us for the the post-game commentary, the wake, in the Ben Wake episode. No, I'm just kidding.
4: I just think if you're going to give a speech about your funeral job, I think you should call it what happens to you when you die.
0: Yeah, the luckier person, right? The dead person's luckier than the person who has to give the eulogy in front of all those people and be nervous.
3: All these speeches about
0: why you should buy life insurance, too.
2: Oh. It's one imagination of what happens to you when you die, which is kind of relevant to some of the things we've been talking about, which is in, in, there's an image in, in Judaism. After you die, you, you go to heaven, but you have your animal head now. So like, you know, whatever your real kind of persona was, you really were an, were an eagle or an ass your whole life, and you are like that. But then you continue to argue. So then in, in heaven, it's a bunch of animal heads arguing with each other. You can forever in the endless bliss of being in the truth. There's still arguments to be had. That's
0: really nice. I wonder what animal head I'd have. Yeah, well, probably a possum because that's your avy. Oh, I love possum. I was thinking about like the weird, the weirdness of like, what if someone had a tapeworm head <laughs> with all those little sharp teeth mouths, and you could you could argue four times at Doesn't a tapeworm have like four mouths or something? I feel like a lot of the tapeworm heads won't be in heaven. I just have a, just get the vibe. who knows yeah virgil virgil broadly gestures to the like parasitic ice flow section section of hell and here we have have k street here too yeah yeah Yeah, here's here's where all the lobbyists exist and place very good all right well thank you all for being here dan Janae, tim dewey lucas Uh, does anyone want to uh, pitch anything? I'll pitch my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slashdeviana, where I've been doing lots of vlogging. But you know, what's funny is I get twice as many views on anything I actually do that's professional. So I think that's a that's a sign. I probably should do more videos about debate and rhetoric than about wandering around in Wisconsin. Yeah, All right, um, yeah. I
2: have uh, a Twitch stream. If you're interested in academic Twitch streams, who isn't? It's switch.tv slash rhetoric prof if
0: you want to come by you can see what i'm doing i'm I'm not there very regularly but once in a while yeah you should do that weekly i think if we're revitalizing in the bin as like summer goals
5: i've made these new friends
0: this year and they're like really into like explicit goal setting for the summer which i think is kind of weird but i'm also kind of on board like steve where's your summer goal list and i'm like uh what And so now I'm like, well, I should revitalize my podcast. So that's one of my summer goals.
4: I would just like to put a plug out for the city of Madison, Wisconsin. It's a beautiful city.
0: Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. I love, I loved my time up there. Have you seen some of my, some of my, uh, take on, on Madison? Some of my videos?
1: The bookstore ones, uh, the bookstore, um, visits
0: was a, I like doing those bookstore videos. I
5: just watched the one where it was Yano eating. That's probably my favorite one.
0: That one was pretty funny, actually. I like that one. There are um, 12 episodes total. Uh, they're not all out yet. They're kind of coming out every couple of days. But, um, yeah, I probably should do more about Because then I put up an old lecture about BP Debate, and it got 50 views immediately. Whereas, like, the best Wisconsin video has, like, 11. So that tells you something. Anyway, I guess we should say adieu and anon and goodbye and join us for the next episode. Anchor.fm slash in the bin or Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, What else are we on? Radio Public, Stitcher, everything. I think most people get their podcasts from Apple and Google. So we're on both of those. So have a listen. And um, yeah, if you like it, let us know. Leave a comment. You can even leave a voice comment over there on Anchor.fm and we'll play it in the show. Uh, and answer your questions. So for everybody here, uh, have a great rest of your day and we'll see you on the next episode.